Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. My day job is as a coach, helping people live better lives. I coach executives and leaders. I coach entrepreneurs and I coach civilians who are looking to improve their lives, their health, their relationships. Basically, it allows me to do what I didn't think was possible, which is to help people completely erase bad habits and different ways of being, erase negative feelings and replace them with positive ones rather than just help people develop new strategies to compete with the old ones or new thought patterns to debate the old thought patterns. And I'm looking for people to work with. And I have reduced my rates a lot so that I can just get as much practice in as I can. So I am going to raise them back up to my normal fees. But right now I just need a lot, a lot of practice and feedback and I have teachers and mentors. So if you're interested in getting my best coaching better than I've ever done at a big discount, email me hj at plantyourself.com. So let's get on with the show. If you're a longtime listener to this podcast, you know that occasionally I'll get obsessed with something and really dive into it. And for the past eight or nine months, I've really been obsessed with the science and application of memory reconsolidation. If you're not sure what that is, you can go back and listen to my first interview on the topic with Tori Olds, O-L-D-S. And I've also released an episode that relates to um, memory reconsolidation with John Connolly. And they're both therapists working in in therapeutic settings. And my interest personally has been in applying the science of memory reconsolidation to coaching, which is what I do. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a mental health clinician. Um, I help people kind of change behaviors in order to get new results in their lives. Um, as, As a coach that I was talking to recently put it, my job is to help my clients' dreams come true, which, which I love. And memory reconsolidation is a way in which it's possible to help people overcome long-standing patterns of stuckness, of self-sabotage, of not going for it, of limiting themselves. And so I was delighted to discover Alan Parry, today's guest, who uh, teaches therapists and coaches the principles and techniques Um, of memory reconsolidation so that you don't have to kind of dive deep into childhood wounds. Uh, You can keep things very present day, almost surface level, but still accomplish the kind of radical transformation that memory reconsolidation is known for. As an added bonus, my daughter, Yaelzi Vaughn, was visiting and so I uh, invited her to participate as well. And I think you'll agree she adds a lot, some great questions and observations. And so if you're a coach or a therapist or a human being who would like to unlock your potential, I think this will be a very useful and fun and interesting conversation. So without further ado, Alan Parry, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Howie and Yael. Yeah, and Yael, welcome also. Thank you for having me, Howard. Miha, my daughter, is uh, joining us because we've both been geeking out um, on your work. Um, Alan, uh, let's begin by having you just sort of introduce yourself and say a little bit about uh, what you do. Yes, I'm I'm a therapist and I'm a coach. And in terms of my therapy work, I've worked for a while now with adults who've basically had a childhood that felt less than safe if we put it in those terms. And as a coach, I work with other therapists and coaches because I discovered, I didn't discover it personally, but I, I hit upon this, um, this discovery that was out there called memory reconsolidation, went down the rabbit hole on that and it completely changed the way I work. Um, it changed the results I got for my clients. I also went and got memory reconsolidation related therapy for my leftover stuff and it's mm. transformed aspects of my life. And I just felt as though I'd, I'd learned about this, you see, um, by accident. I wasn't taught this formally, formally and I just thought that this was far too important a discovery in neuroscience to not be sharing it as widely as I could. And I've got a teaching background so I set up the Memory Reconsolidation Coaching Academy, and I've, I've been coaching therapists and coaches on this ever since. And 
of course, wrote the book as well in order to try and get the message out as and, well. And by the book, you mean? It's called How to Remove Trauma Response. Um, for the video people, I'll, I'll hold it up. And the subtitle is A Memory Reconsolidation Guidebook for Therapists and Coaches. But it's, it's written very accessibly uh, because I know when I was looking for therapy myself, I used to read therapists like books that were aimed at therapists mm -hmm. and get the inside deal. And I found that a lot of people have done that as well and have contacted me and said how the book has helped them in terms of their, their own non-professional uh, development too. Yeah, and I discovered you through looking on Amazon for memory reconsolidation because it is, it is still an underground yeah. thing. Well, that's why I wanted the subtitle to actually mention memory reconsolidation because I did the exact same thing. I was going on Amazon looking for memory reconsolidation and there was very little out there. Uh, of course, Bruce Ecker's stuff is out there. Courtney Armstrong has got some stuff that covers it as well. So it's, it's not not out there, but there isn't a lot of it. And I thought that I could, I could contribute in that way. Yeah, it's interesting because I had never heard of it. And then through Tori Olds, I discovered, yes. you know, a coherence therapy and some other. And then I, you know, I, I was still hungry and I found you. And then a couple months later, there was an article, uh, an op-ed in the New York, uh, Washington Post um, by Gary Trudeau who okay. the cartoonist okay. from Doonesbury, who is yeah, apparently yeah. in his later life has become uh, impassioned about um, me mental health of, of, of army veterans, of, of military veterans. And he was talking about this memory reconsolidation protocol, which didn't involve any of the people that we've mentioned, but like, you know, like, the same way, the same energy that you have, like, we've got to tell people about this. This yeah. is actually helping in ways that nothing else has. Well, everyone's brain, you see, has this mechanism. That's what they discovered. They used to think that if you had a traumatic event and you were carrying the trauma, well, tough luck. You, you just had to kind of manage this thing. <laughs> and, and the big discovery of memory reconsolidation is that we now know that the brain actually has an inbuilt mechanism that that can just update this old emotional learning. So it's, it's kind of like a birthright, isn't it? It's something that we've all got. I know the therapist Thomas Zimmerman refers to it as a birthright. Mm. And I, I really like the way he, he, he uses that language because it is, we're all born with it. We all have the capacity. We just need to kind of know how to trigger it. And thankfully the neurosciences has even told us that as well. Yeah. So um, before, before we get into the magical world, um, you mentioned like before we used to think you have an inside track at the at the before as you were trained in those methods. Can you kind of give us like your uh, whatever whatever biography feels useful to uh, as a setup? Yeah, I mean, like many people, therapy is not my first career. I've done a whole load of things um, before this. And, and weirdly enough, the the thing that I did before I was a therapist, I was a professional musician uh, and songwriter. So a, a real kind of shift. And I was more involved in the performance arts. So as a musician, I've done some acting. Um, I've done, um, I led an improvisation troupe where we were improvising um, full plays based on an audience suggestion. So I was in a very different world. Although I, I still see the similarities now when I'm working with a client, <laughs> it still feels a bit improv, you know, that I'm, yeah. I'm on stage with a scene partner and we're, we're mm. coming to this conclusion together. Yeah. But and, when I try to be... And, and the yeah. yes and, as opposed to, uh, like, so much therapy yeah. is sort of no but, right? But, yeah, yeah. But this, this is all yes and, like... Exactly. Yeah, so my approach is really quite constructivist. I don't take the view that there's a clever therapist who has all the answers. My role really is to, my skill set, I suppose, is to come up with the frameworks which enable the person to get a deeper knowledge that they wouldn't have had without those frameworks, but they're filling in the content, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. rather than the clever therapist handing down edicts from on high. Mm -hmm. right. So in terms of my training, um, what I noticed about my training is it was quite diagnostic. So it wasn't, it wasn't medical model. Um, and I, I don't actually like the, the whole sort of disorder stuff, you know, the, um, 
people in the therapy world are, are sort of using the DSM manual and assigning disorders to people. I don't think it's that helpful. I understand why sometimes people will want something to explain their suffering. I just think emotional learning is a better way to explain the suffering. So my stance is always this makes sense. And so mm. if it makes sense, it can't be a disorder. It can't be maladaptive because this makes sense. It's something that actually helped the person at one point. And the worst thing that you can say about it is it's, it's running now a, a prediction that is outdated. But still, it will always make sense. And I've never worked with anyone yet where the presenting issue that they wanted to overcome didn't make sense once we explored it. But I found that even though my training wasn't really in the medical model and it wasn't, it wasn't labeling people with disorders, it still had quite a diagnostic uh, attitude. It still had certain things that that particular model of therapy was assigning things to people. I remember we had, um, we had a training and one of the things that we had to do is we'd listen to one of our students, our fellow students, they tell us some stuff and we'd have to use our model to assign, you know, whatever it was that was going on with them. Mm. And then we'd find out if we were right because they had their own sense of, no, no, this is who I am kind of thing. And we were terrible at it. <laughs> you know, everyone was terrible at it. We all got a, a really low score as we were trying to assign the model to the person. And it kind of struck me in that moment that, the way we knew what the right answer was is the person told us. And that was always a big lesson to me that, you know, you could cut our, our supposed knowledge out and just ask the person what's going on for them. Mm -hmm. So what, I was, that, was that the point of the exercise or was that sort oh, of no. an ironic outcome? <laughs> no, it was not the point. The point of the exercise was to try and, um, to try and train us up, to give us the experience of, assigning this thing to the person. But it just struck me that, the, you know, let's say there were, let's say we had to assign five things. We were getting like one or two out of five, you know, it was, it was almost like no better than random. But the person was getting five out of five. In fact, they were telling us whether we were right or wrong. And it just struck me that this whole diagnostic model, it was, it was problematic in that sense, but also, there would be a certain situation. I remember asking this in my training, but I've had clients ask me, you can identify the problem in a way that they say, oh, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. But then they say, so what do we do about it? <laughs> and in that training, you don't really know because you've, you've got this kind of whole viewpoint is about diagnosing. It's about, um, it's about categorizing the problem. And so when I was asking those questions in training, I said, what do we do about it? The answer coming back from my trainers just felt insufficient. They talk about the therapeutic relationship, which is not nothing, but it, it felt very woolly in terms of what do we do about it? And when I coach therapists and coaches today, there are a couple of problems that come up consistently. And one of, one of which is feeling stuck and lost in sessions that they don't know what to do about the issue that is that has now been clarified between them. And so now this neuroscience discovery gives us a really clear roadmap because it's laid out what the brain needs. And so as therapists and coaches, we do know what to do because once we follow the implication of what the brain needs, we just need to find the ingredients. A little bit like, you know, if you were to cook your favorite dish today, um, you'd find the ingredients and then you'd cook it. So in terms of our work, we're either finding the ingredients for what the brain needs or providing that, you know, uh, setting up an experience where the brain gets that. Gotcha. And so, the, but the other thing you said, like memory reconsolidation has identified a mechanism by which we, do, we can remove, as your book says, remove trauma response. Yeah. What yeah. were you, do, what was the best you were taught you could do in the absence of that? Like what if if you can't remove it? How, like even theoretically, how do you how are you supposed to help people who have this thing that can't be unlearned? I think when the when the paradigm is that it can't be unlearned, you get into the realms of trauma management. And it, even if you look, excuse me, <clears throat> even if you look on Facebook at the moment and you get like Facebook adverts from therapists and 
and people who are providing these services, the trauma management paradigm is still is still very paramount. So if you have a nervous system response, it's about befriending the nervous system. It's about soothing the nervous system. And so it's it's very much a, a management thing. And a sense, what's going on anatomically here, when we talk about removing trauma response, all of that activation, all of that emotional learning is actually held on a physical brain pathway. So just like the streets outside your home, there's kind of like little streets in terms of the brain as well, if you think of it in layperson's terms. So that all of that learning, all of that response is held on a brain pathway. And that brain pathway was once considered was just locked away forever because it's actually survival significant. If I'm walking towards a river and an alligator jumps out, my brain wants me to remember that there's an alligator that lives in that river because otherwise I'm probably going to be the alligator's dinner one day. So it makes sense that we keep hold of this stuff. But we used to think that it was just stuck forever. So if that brain pathway with all of that stuff is just going to be in the brain forever, the only way therapists and coaches could really work, seeing as we couldn't overwrite that, we thought we couldn't, is to try and build a competing brain pathway with all the responses that we want instead. And then we just set up a competition. So it might be that you notice that when you've worked with a client, what the client says was, oh, in the past I used to do this automatically, but now it seems as though I'm at a crossroads. What's happening anatomically there is we've actually built another neural pathway mm. through the therapy and coaching of trying to strengthen it and hope to God that in the competition between the trauma pathway and the new one, the new one wins. <laughs> but like with any competition... Like with any competition, you don't get a 100% success rate there. Nope. And particularly in terms of high stress, what happens is that the old trauma pathway, because it's in, still intact, will often win. And then we experience kind of relapse. So there's a there's a problem. Sorry, can, sorry, can you hold, hold on one second. I think yeah. I did it. Push the bottom one. The bottom one? The bottom one. Oh. <laughs> We I may, don't live here. Uh, we may or may not edit this part out. <laughs> we did not. We did not do the the, uh, the training manual on letting people in. Yeah. Through, right, well, so, this is actually a, this is a good analogy. So let's use it. Let's be very improv and use what's in the room. Yes, and awesome. Let's say, <laughs> let's say that you had a fault on your doorbell and it was doing that all the time, and so. Just like your Ella's done, you could get up and fix it and turn it off. But about 10 minutes later, it'd go again. And then you'd have to get up and turn it off. Let's say it was a fault. Mm. That's trauma management. Yeah, It's kind of like it, you're not going to fix the doorbell doing that. It's still going to go off and annoy you constantly. But we will show you how to get up and turn it off when it's annoying, and then ten minutes later. Mm. And and if it's bad enough, we could put on headphones or earplugs. Exactly. And if, it, and if it's really bad, we could we could drug it and try to uh, <laughs> try to find and cut. So now yeah. nobody can get. Is that in. the memory reconsolidation? Is just unplugging the 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 noise? Like what? Well, with with memory reconsolidation what you would do is ensure that the thing was working in the here and now. Mm. So it wouldn't be ringing all the time because someone pressed the button three days ago. Uh-huh. <laughs> it yeah. would be operating in the here and now. So you'd hear it when someone pressed the button, you wouldn't hear it. And it's the same thing. If there was a sense of threat in the here and now, your nervous system would still resource you. But if mm. there was a threat 30 years ago, that your nervous system is still picking up on the cues of today, mm -hmm. that's where the trauma response kicks in. Mm -hmm. And so it's better not to manage that and have to live with that and keep wrestling with that because your nervous system is very powerful. It's better to update the nervous system so it's operating from here and now assessments of what the threat is. So mm -hmm. if, I'd, if I'd grown up in a family, for instance, where any time I shared who I was, they mocked, ridiculed, or even beat me. It's going to make sense that even as an adult now, my nervous system will not want me to, to kind of share myself with other people. I might end up quite socially isolated, and that would make sense. Because yeah. even though I might want to go to all the parties and mix with people and make friends, the moment, the moment somebody asks about who I am, what I enjoy, 
I'm just going to go into a panic state on some mm. level. The nervous system is going to start resourcing me because it thinks that this is the same dangerous situation as it was mm-hmm. back, say, with a family member or a father or something like that. Mm. So that so it's it's really effortful to keep trauma at bay. What's effortless is when the trauma is erased through memory consolidation. Because then there is no trauma to be kept at bay because it's been updated, it's been overwritten. That trauma response has been overwritten. So what you end up with then is a situation where you still remember what happened to you because it doesn't change the story memory, but all the stuff that's held in implicit memory, like your nervous system responses, doesn't have that reaction anymore. And so people will say things like, when I connect to the story, I know it's something which maybe should bring distress and always has, but I can't find it anymore. Mm. There's no distress attached to that. I have a question and it's pretty abstract and I just woke up, so forgive me. Um, So you just said we just made this discovery like 20 years ago that we had all along this little switch that we could actually update. I'm just curious as human beings, like obviously the trauma response made sense, you know, when we were like fighting off snakes and shit. I don't, I don't think so. That's fine. Uh, um, but, but just, uh, just don't say fuck, okay? Oh, <laughs> oh. I know. My bad. Wait, you've, so so we, so as human beings, we've been around for a long time for us, right? We've we've yeah. been around and we've done a lot of bad things to each other, and there's been a lot of history of bad fathers, bad mothers, bad things happening. So. I'm curious if there was ever a point in the past where we accessed this, maybe without knowing it, in some sort of more tribal, more spiritual way that that we're now rediscovering in a science way for this new generation of people who deeply, deeply, deeply need therapy. Yes. I mean, yes is the short answer. So this was discovered by the neuroscience in the late 1990s. Mm. So the difference between a discovery and an invention is that when you discover something, it implies that it's already been happening for a while. So if I were to go into the rainforest Uh and I were to discover a new species of butterfly, I'm not inventing it in that Uh moment. (laughs) I didn't know about it yesterday, but it was there. It was probably there 10, 100 years ago. And so when I was doing my training, there were certain things that I was drawn towards and there was, there was somebody doing something in the 70s where I was reading it and they were clearly getting the kind of transformation that I now recognize mm. happens when memory consolidation occurs. And I was really drawn to these, um, these people who were called Bob and Mary Goulding. And mm. they had this book called Changing Lives Through Redecision Therapy. And through all of my training, this was kind of one of the things that I would kind of reread and it, it just drew me towards and I didn't quite know why, but it looked like they were getting the sort of transformation that I was wanting to get once I became fully trained. Mm. When I revisit that book now, for instance, I can see that the steps of memory reconsolidation, which I suppose I should actually say, because people might be getting frustrated, like, well, what, what is it? Yeah. <laughs> so I'll go into the formula in a second. But they were following the steps of memory consolidation. And so you could see that. So... You know, there's, there's probably lots and lots of different ways that humans have been instinctively moving towards this. Right. Therapists and coaches have been smart enough to move towards this before the neuroscience got there. But the way I think of it, let's say you're in a dark room and your instinct and experience tells you that if you're hitting this the wall, certain points in that kind of area where you're reaching the wall, the light comes on. And so you've got some sort of instinct in that area and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And you don't quite understand how, but nonetheless, you know that you're getting results. And then the neuroscientists come along and say, this is why, because over there in that particular part of the wall is the light switch. Mm -hmm. And then they guide you to the light switch and then your results are very, very consistent and Mm -hmm. reliable because now you understand what what your instinct was taking you towards. Mm -hmm. So I think that's basically what's happened. There's been lots and lots of people getting transformation, both deliberately and inadvertently, Mm -hmm. and they've been happening upon what the neuroscientists later managed to really 
nailed right. down. So yeah, there's been shamans and all sorts in the past, yeah. hasn't there? And yeah. Because, I mean, I had an experience. Well, can louder. I talk about my shamanic experience? You can talk about whatever you want. Okay, great. Well, when I, was, uh, when I was 10 or 9 years old, I, a couple of different friends of mine had had parents who had passed away. And okay. because it was possible for a parent to die, like when you're a kid, you're like, yeah, my parents are never going to die. But when you yeah. know people whose parents have died, like it became clear to me that it was just a matter of time for me, really. Like it's, you know, so I had this. I was so anxious all the time. My teeth were rotting away and I was never having sugar. I was on the quinoa diet. And, and so my parents like didn't know what to do. And we ended up working with a shaman over the phone. Oh, and, wow. and I remember her saying like, is it okay if I take, like take off the armor? And, and I said, yes. And after she did this session on me, I didn't have anxiety for like the rest of my formative years about my wow. parents dying. It was just this like, this acceptance of like whatever happens happens. And I don't know if that's memory reconsolidation or, you know, how. Well, you can kind of, you can kind of get a clue whether right. memory reconsolidation has happened because what happens is the shift is really big. Yeah. So it's not an incremental change. Right. It was You're immediate. Just, yeah. yeah. The exactly. anxiety was constant and then it was gone. Yeah. That's a good marker of it, yeah. Yeah. So shall I say what the formula is so people know what we're talking sure. about here? Sure. You can basically you can basically put it into three steps and then you can see, yeah, whether what the shaman did yeah. matched yeah. these three steps. It's funny, I give talks sometimes to to people who specialise in a particular form of therapy. And I won't ne necessarily know what that form of therapy is, but they claim transformational results. And then I tell them the formula and I say, does it do this? And they're all nodding their head, you know, <laughs> it follows this map. So what the brain needs in order to get the kind of change that you were just talking about, Yael, firstly, we need to activate the old distress or prediction. Mm -hmm. So in your case, for instance, you were probably put in contact or you were already feeling it anyway. The yeah. kind of activation from this fear about your parents yeah. passing away. Mm -hmm. While that activation is present, then what happens is that there is some kind of mismatch experience. Mm -hmm. Now, by some kind, it could be conversational, where you have a penny drop moment, but it kind of it, it disconfirms the old distress or prediction. It could be experiential, like using your imagination. I tend to use the imagination more. Because in an experience, it just seems more uh, effective. Mm -hmm. And then what you do is you you just keep holding those two that that kind of juxtaposition. You, yeah. There's there's someone in my coaching academy called Jane, and she she has a, a really nice um, metaphor of the activation and the mismatch being like bumper cars mm -hmm. at a fairground, and so you just keep bumping them together. So when you have an activation followed by a mismatch, it's a prediction followed by a prediction error. Mm. And so what the brain does there is it actually unlocks the brain pathway. So whereas we normally thought, oh, you're stuck with this, the brain's locked it, it's destroyed the key, tough luck. Mm. We now know that it does keep the advantages of holding onto this learning securely, but it's a lot more like a combination safe if you put mm. your jewels in a combination safe, you can be pretty safe that you're not going to lose them. But at the same time, you've got a combination. You can follow some certain steps and open the safe and change the contents. Yeah. So what the memory consolidation steps are that open the safe is that prediction followed by prediction error. Mm -hmm. Now, all that does at that stage is it opens the safe and the safe will stay open for about four to five hours. If you do nothing more, and there's no repeat of that, then there's no change. It mm -hmm. just unlocks and then later locks again. Right. But the, re the repetition part, the bumper cars bit, is where that opened up safe, you actually change the contents. So the prediction followed by the prediction error opens the brain pathway, and then when that prediction and prediction error is repeated, the brain kind of updates the learning and overwrites the old. And when the old is gone, you have the experience that you have, which is, well, half an hour ago, I had this great anxiety. Mm -hmm. Now it's gone and it stays gone because mm -hmm. it's a permanent removal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Do, do you have thoughts about what, 
what the, what the prediction that was disconfirmed was? Was it just like I it's rem- it's possible that this could be removed or it? You know, I think I thought that worrying about it. I think the 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 thing that I was wrong about was that worrying about it enough wouldn't like would make sure it didn't happen. Mm. Like the worry itself was a tool for protection. And so when she, she made me visualize myself like lying in a river, I think. And she asked, she's like, these, you're, you're holding on to this like worry as if it is armor. But what if we took off the armor and you were just allowed to not have it anymore? So maybe Mm. that like was the metaphor. What was your experience of not having it? So when you took off the armor, which at that point was necessary, because you made a really great point there, Yeah. that the worry is is an armor, it's a protection. And this is always the case, that the thing that we bring to therapy is something which solves another problem. Right. Even though it's something we want rid of, we also need to keep it because it's solving another problem, which is far worse. Right. So in, in your case, the worry was the armor. Yeah. And you felt as though it was essential. So what happened when you took it off? Well, she asked if I she could take mm. it off. And I said yes. Mm. And she's like on the phone. I didn't even meet her or talk to her. I was just like in my room. Yeah. And and after the session was over, I did not experience that at all. Like, do you remember when I was like that with, with the anxiety? Like, I wouldn't even let you guys go to the take out the garbage without like I was like, what if you don't come back? And then after that, I stopped. I was like, yeah, whatever. You know, I, it was complete 180. Yeah. Just yeah. no more symptoms, no more anxiety. So, so when you were lying in the river lying with the, the armor river. off, what did, yeah. you, what did you feel? I don't remember, but I'm sure fine. <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> well, I felt this is great. The, well, I think this maybe might be the mismatch there. Yeah. So yeah, your, yeah. your prediction was I need the worry. Right. Because this is keeping me safe. And if I let go of the armor, I'm not going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And you had this experience, albeit imaginal, but in, right. the imagination works directly with your nervous 100%, system. One hundred percent. Yeah, that's why we wake up from a nightmare. We've only had ourselves for company, and we're sweating, and the heart's beating, yeah. and so on. So, mm-hmm. in that experiential moment, you took the armor off, and you were fine, and you felt okay. Yeah, which was the, which I'm guessing is the mismatch. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 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 And and I, as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about all the ways in which you could we could have dealt with that psychologically that would have made things worse. Right. Like, oh, that's magical thinking. You're a right. child. Grow up. Yeah. Or, or yeah. let's practice breathing when you feel that. Yeah. And not acknowledging the the constructivist view. You constructed a solution mm-hmm. to yeah. a problem that would have been intolerable. Right. Yeah. Or oh, we we could have given we could have um, invented a disorder for you. you yeah, know. that's true. <laughs> we could have had a parental death disorder, yeah. which may exist. I don't know, but let's <laughs> say we had that. But it wouldn't have necessarily helped you. Yeah, it absolutely. would have just been a label, but it wouldn't have got to this sense of this makes sense. Yeah. So once we understand why it makes sense, then we've got the prediction. You see, and that's where a lot yeah. of the work actually happens trying to understand why it makes sense. Because once we do, we've got the prediction and you kind of need the prediction in order to generate yeah. a prediction error. But well, if your nervous I... system is responding, there must be a prediction of, of unsafety right. because that's exactly what it's designed to do. It's designed to resource you in the event of threat. I honestly, I think that the, the, the problem lies with Walt Disney. I think... <laughs> I think he just every time there's a main character, it's like, all right, three minutes in, we're gonna kill the mom. Let's go. Let's just <laughs> offer right now. Yeah, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, I never thought about it. That that's. I just made a discovery myself. Look at you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's possible that the shaman has never heard of memory consolidation. Yeah. But they've acted completely consistently with the steps of memory consolidation. Yeah. Activated your worry, took off the armor of the worry. You had the experience that you were okay without it. Yeah. And then you learned that you didn't need it anymore. And yeah. then your life changed. Yeah. And, and this, is not, this is not some sort of um, cognitive thing. It's just giving the brain what it needs. So one of the people who trained me, when I always used to ask the question about what do we do about it, he'd say, Alan, therapy is a process not an event. 
Mm. And what he was meaning by this is that there's a little bit of exploring to do. I, I tweak that now and I think therapy is a process that leads to an event. Mm. And the event is the event of memory reconsolidation. It's a brain mechanism that's biological. And when we're able to trigger that, that's the event of therapy. Mm. So any of the resources that we construct, like I, I often use ideal attachment resources, like maybe ideal parent figures and so on mm. uh, within the work, but we're not constructing that to try and give them some sort of faux parent to go through life with. We're constructing it as a device to give the brain what it needs to overwrite that trauma completely, if that makes sense. Could you give an example of that, as like with a patient? Yeah, so um, let's say, for instance, that someone, let's say somebody was really badly neglected, for instance, as a child. And let's say, uh, I'm trying to think of a presenting issue. Let's say, for instance, that they, let's say that they, they had, they had really, um, they didn't trust anybody and they couldn't get close to anybody because their experience of getting close was the one that they had with their parents, mm. which wasn't a pleasant one. And so in that sense, the, their presenting problem, if you like, is I'd really like to get close to people, but every time I do, I pull away. Maybe that's what they've said. Mm. Like your armor, that makes sense and it's protective. Right. Because had they have tried, had they have gotten very, very close and not pulled away from their parents who was neglectful and abusive, as a little child, that probably would have been disastrous. Right. So the, the presenting problem is always like an active, an old active genius from when they were younger. Right. Hmm. So this presenting problem now is getting in the way of life because they want to make relationships and so on. So now that you know what the prediction is and you know that it's protective, you can actually connect to the part of them that it is protecting. So, for instance, you might say something like, like taking off your armor. Mm. If you no longer had the part that pulled away, what would that be like? Like mm -hmm. drop into an experience, that part that's always there protecting you, that every time you get close, it pulls you away. Let's say this time you're getting close to, some, to somebody and this time that part that normally pulls you away, it can't access you. And so you're just getting closer and closer to the person. What's that like for the young part of you that normally has this protective puller away? What's that like? What are you noticing here in your body, for instance? So again, it's very experiential mm. as they connect to this idea of no longer being rescued by the part that pulls them away. And so they might connect then to various feelings, various sensations. We'll check what the emotion is. Are they feeling sad? Are they feeling scared? What's their felt sense? You know, do they feel trapped? Do they feel unloved? Mm. Do they feel uh, unimportant? Do they feel helpless? And by, by felt sense, I mean those kind of words that are not a body sensation and they're not an emotion, but people say, I feel, I'm following up with like a, an assessment of the meaning of this situation. Right. And once we've got all that, it's kind of an easy step then to say, so what in the midst of all this, and we're doing this to get the activation of course, but in mm -hmm. the midst of all of this, what is it that this part really needs? And they might say, you know, I need someone to make me feel safe or I need to feel supported. Everyone's different, which is why I say, I take a constructivist sort of approach, let them fill in the details. And then we'll say, let's imagine that there was someone who was ideally suited to giving mm. you those things. It might be a person, it might be somebody you know from your childhood or from life at the moment. It might be a fictional person, mm -hmm. like maybe a TV character's parents or something, or it might be something supernatural, or it might be an animal. Quite a lot of people use dogs, for instance, mm. um, in terms of doing this. Like, who or what is going to be the thing that is going to be able to provide those needs yeah. for you? And so they have the experience of those needs being provided. And so as the puller away part that normally protects them isn't there and they're left with the disaster of how it's going to feel without that, that part gets help from this ideal figure. And they bumper car. 
and then they bump a car right and we kind of swing between the two so let's reconnect to the to the version of you that we initially what's coming up for you now and you can kind mm-hmm. of contrast and compare and then bring them back into the scene with the dog or the magical parent or whatever mm-hmm. until they're just when we revisit they're not getting any distress and they have a whole different set of meanings mm-hmm. so we've constructed that ideal resource not so they have to carry that through life because people are like yeah but it's i still didn't have i still didn't have the the mom that i deserved and wanted so mm-hmm. we're not kind of just trying to create a, a fake version that's going to stick in plaster over it what we're dealing with are the predictions that are operating in the here and now right. as a result of them not having had the mum that they deserved mm. and so we're trying to trigger that event of memory reconsolidation so that those old trauma responses those old predictions ways of seeing the world that occurred because they were in that situation no longer feel true for them mm-hmm. yeah. does that make sense at all or yeah. feel yeah. free to ask any follow ups yeah. on that so so i've um, as as i've been incorporating these um, processes into my own coaching one of the th- you know so I'm, i'm always looking for the what's called the symptom deprivation where yes, which exactly. is which is what you just described about what would it be like if you couldn't do that thing the thing i always get and i still struggle to get past it with clients is that what you know they will articulate their anti symptom position as bruce ecker calls it and they'll say it would be great if i didn't feel that if if i was at a party yeah. and i could get close to someone and trust them oh it would be fantastic and yeah. it's i i um and that's, i don't and that's I, true isn't it So I mean the symptom deprivation just to come back to you Yael mm-hmm. the symptom deprivation as as Bruce Ecker refers to it is you're just taking away the thing that's that's been that's presenting yeah so your symptom deprivation is where the shaman invited you to take off the armor of worry right and in that moment you got to a place where you're okay without the armor so just to kind of clarify and join up the dots but you're right mm. if you were to ask somebody So what if you didn't have this problem? Yeah. The part that came to therapy and coaching is like, well that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I'm here. But one of the things I teach is this concept of the invisible twin. Mm. So whenever somebody comes to therapy, like most of the time we're creating change. Mm-hmm. Like you notice me having sips of drink. So whenever I feel my mouth go dry, I don't want it to be dry, I don't want to be thirsty, I pick up my cup and I have a drink. So I go from one state to another state and I'm powerful enough like our clients are to enact these changes all the time some of them mundane like this one some of them quite impressive but there's something about this change that they don't enact and the reason why as I kind of conceptualize it is there is a part of them that wants the change but another part that feels that if they were to get the change it would actually be even worse for them Mm. So I always think that when a client comes to see me that they bring this invisible twin. So they come in saying, "Yeah, it'd be great if I got close to people." So our job is not so so much to focus on the problem or even as many as a lot of coaching and some therapies do, focus on the outcome. You know, the big kind of like, let's have your willpower and power through and you know, feel the resistance and go through it anyway. Mm-hmm. I'm always interested in the resistance because What's happening there is that there's an an invisible twin which basically says you might want to get to those close to those people. I don't want you to do that <laughs> because my learning from your history is that when that happens it's the same as what happened with dad and you're going to get mocked and ridiculed maybe mm-hmm. even beaten. And so I'm I'm going to spot the danger as your nervous system and I'm going to motivate and activate so that you feel all of these uncomfortable aversive feelings. Right. And that'll keep you not doing the thing because I'm I've fundamentally got a prediction that if I let you drop the problem, if I let you get the change, it's actually going to be worse for you. And so you've got this little impasse going on right. between the part that wants the change and the part doesn't. So what I find now Howie is that This is why I think experiential work is good because if you just ask him the cognitive question then people will go to the as you call it the anti-symptom position like I don't want this. So what I'm trying to do is always to try and drop into an experience 
where they are separated, if you like, from the invisible twin. Like, what if that part isn't here to, to, to activate? What if that part that's normally here helping you out is, is not here for some reason, hasn't shown up for work or is locked out of the building and it just can't get to you? And so they're, well, and that's helpful in two ways because it, it helps the client bump into the motivation of the protective part, which can sometimes be really mean. So let's say you've got somebody who has um, really low self-worth and they just tell themselves how awful and disgusting they are all the time. That protective part seems mean and it doesn't seem protective. But when you actually separate it and say like, that part is no longer allowed to help you anymore or have access to you and to tell you those things, you then are able to kind of connect to the part that's normally protecting. And the client notices the sense of panic that that part has. So as you separate that out, yeah. and maybe it's looking at you through the window, but it can't get at you to tell you those things anymore. What's going on for the part that normally does tell you those things? Mm. And people very typically say, well, it's frantic. It's panicking. And I'm like, well, what's it fearing if it's frantic and panicking? Well, if it's not here to tell me those things, then dot, dot, dot. And then the prediction kind of pops out. And in the same way, we can shift to the protected part and say, well, what, what's it like for you now? Because you normally have this protector right. telling you that you're awful and disgusting. What's it like now to, to not have that? And in the experience of being separated, the kind of fears tend to come up more from the experience. Mm. And if they do say, oh, well, that would be wonderful, you can kind of validate that and say, yeah, I imagine it would be wonderful. And at the same time, what feels uncomfortable about it? What's going on in your body that feels like, oh, maybe there's a part of me that doesn't want me to get this. And that's where we're digging into how it makes sense because it will always make sense. And once you've got that prediction, like if I can't get back into the room and tell that young version of them that they're awful and disgusting, then dot, 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 and this mm -hmm. is why I'm frantic. You've got the prediction, then you've got that discovery part of the work where you can then work with that prediction and create a prediction error. So it's a really key part of the work that trying to understand why this makes sense, why it's essential. And the reason why we try and lock the protective part out of the room is because it follows that if it's essential, once we deprive them of that essential thing, we can start to really get clear on what it's protecting them from the moment that it's not there. I have a question. I, I, this is just curiosity time. So, yeah, you know, I think in the past, like therapists will, will diagnose people as like histrionic, bipolar, um, narcissistic, sociopathic, or maybe spe specifically people that might not ever go to therapy because the way that their symptoms of their childhood are acting is beneficial to them because they can kind of steamroll over people or whatever. Like the so quote unquote, like, difficult clients or difficult people. And I'm just curious, like as someone who's done as much work as you, like what do you actually think about people like that who are like labeled like that? And are there people that are are not maybe even going to therapy, but if you find yourself therapizing them, are they are they impossible? Are they difficult? Are there people that are like immune to this type of work? And what do you think about, you know, those kinds of labels? Well, sometimes people will come to me with a label because they've been given it by a medical professional. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes people start a session saying, I have this disorder and that disorder because they've been assigned those labels. I always just kind of work with the person. Right. And there are non-medical labels as well, like you mentioned one, histrionic. Mm -hmm. um, I don't find them, I just don't find them helpful. Yeah. So I kind of sidestep it. The, the thing with... The thing with these labels, they're very much like train stations. Mm. So with a train station, I can get a whole group of people and say, you're all platform four, mm. right? All of you people, that's what you've got in common. But it doesn't tell me where they've been. Yeah. It doesn't tell me where they've traveled from. Yeah. It doesn't tell me where they're going to or even where they want to go to. It just tells me that they're all in this place Mm -hmm. at the moment and so it's it's almost like a false categorization to say oh you're on platform four so let's treat you 
in the same way. It just means right. that they're at that particular station in that particular place at the moment. Mm-hmm. So let's take something like, <clears throat> let's take someone, someone who is um, very, very anxious, who someone might apply a label of histrionic to them. Mm-hmm. Any kind of resistance is exactly what we're working with. So when you talk about difficult clients, no clients is difficult. Right. Sometimes the work can be tricky, I, but no clients. I mean, yeah, I on. mean more like difficult people. I mean, like maybe an abusive person or like, like someone who's like, oh, I was in a relationship with a narcissist or, oh, I was in a relationship, like this person <clears throat> harmed me and they might not be in therapy or they might be in therapy, but like they've, they've caused great harm without um, empathy or remorse for it. Like what kind of work, how would you work with that person? How would you have empathy for that person? What would you let go of from them, you know? So if that person did never go into therapy, then obviously you're stuck. But if they they were in front of me, Uh I would work with them in the way that I work with everybody else. How does it make sense? Mm -hmm. How does it make sense that you, that it's difficult to kind of, um, feel empathy towards a person, for instance. Mm-hmm. How does it make sense that when you're in a difficult situation, you respond with violence rather than something else? Mm-hmm. And by saying, how does it make sense? You're not trying to provide a justification for it. Right. You're not trying to provide a, a, a rationale for it that, that apologizes for it. Mm-hmm. What you're actually trying to do is get to the point where whatever whatever is driving that and makes it feel essential like any other unwanted behavior or response is overwritten. Right. So you'll, you'll see some, you'll see people sometimes and like, if you think of like the, the parts of yourself that are, how can I put this? That are spikier. So Mm. your nervous system kicks in, you're spikier, you get to a place of short temper that's the part of you that is probably least like you. Mm-hmm. And I noticed this in my own journey as well. I'm very, very placid. I'm very, very calm. And so when there were elements where I felt really emotionally hurt and I would get spikier, that was the moment where I was least like me. Yeah. And so since the reconsolidation has happened, even in those moments of emotional hurt, I just respond more like me. Mm. But it would make sense why I'd be spikier mm-hmm. in those moments, given what I've experienced. So mm. whatever someone is going through, whatever is the unwanted response, whether it's harming them or harming another person, and often it's both, Yeah, I would always start from that same place. First of all, they don't want it, which is a good thing, because that's why they're here. So if, that, if they've harmed somebody and they don't, and they're choosing to be in, in therapy or coaching. That's a right. good thing in itself. Yeah. But ultimately, you have to kind of get to a point. How does it make sense to that person's internal system, if you like, mm-hmm. that they're responding in that way that they don't even want to be responding in? Yeah. Because when you update that response and they no longer see this situation as threatening in however way they see it, then they'll have... A completely different response. Right. I remember talking to um, a guy, a really interesting guy. I won't give his name um, just because I don't have his permission to talk about this. But I talked about him in a public. I talked with him in a public forum, and he does a lot of work now in terms of peace and nonviolence and so on. But when he was a very young man, he murdered somebody. He shot somebody dead when he was a, a, a teenager, about eighteen or nineteen. And I spoke to him about what that was about, what was going on for him. And he said that his his sense was nobody messes with me and he had to put that persona out because mm. he was terrified and he was trying to secure, he was trying to secure safety by being that character. Mm-hmm. And he said, ironically, it put me in the most unsafe environment I could possibly have imagined, which was a penitentiary yeah. in America. Yeah. And, but you can hear from just that conversation that what's happening there is there is some sort of core need mm-hmm. that is being that is trying that they are trying to meet in a way which actually is harmful. Mm-hmm. 
And so if somebody was in front of me and said, you know, I'm, I'm harming people in a, in a particular way, um, and obviously I'm, there's a whole host of safeguarding things that I'm not talking about here. I'm just yeah. talking about the direct question. Right. If somebody says, you know, I've harmed people in the past, I don't want to be doing that in the future. Like anything else, you follow the same process. Right. How does this make sense? And once you know that prediction, you can generate a prediction error so they no longer feel as though they need to use that strategy anymore. Mm -hmm. And also their nervous system is not driving them in the same way. Mm -hmm. Because what's happening there is they're, they're feeling a, a huge threat right. in a situation where it's no longer as threatening as perhaps it once felt mm -hmm. when they had less adulthood, less resources and so on. Okay. Um, I'm curious whether you've worked with people who present not necessarily with a, you know, a psychological distress, but say ADHD or, or sort of processing disorders. Are these... Are they completely different animals or is there? Uh... I don't know, actually. You know, I've been I've been thinking about this a lot because a lot of people are reporting that phenomenon and I don't know what the crossover is. My initial sense is, and I think Gabor Mate has said this as well, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some sort of trauma response in there. Um, it almost feels like... Um, like like almost like prey behavior doesn't it mm -hmm. um like if i was going to do an improv scene and i was going to pretend to be a deer i'd be very distracted and startled and i'd be looking around 100%. and it'd be very different yeah <laughs> yes. it'd be, be very hard to focus on the one thing because you're looking for the threat all the time yeah. i wouldn't be surprised if there was a component of that i don't know probably enough about it but it's there's a there's a thing though where if so many people start to report a disorder, um, I, I, I wonder to what extent the label um, is necessarily useful. And at the same time, I've, I know that I've had clients who've gone to their doctor and got some medication and felt that that medication really helped. Mm -hmm. And again, I, I don't know. I don't know whether mm -hmm. that's a sense of that medication would, would, would provide some sort of boost to all of us, whether mm -hmm. it's whether it's something that is particularly related to, the, to that. It's something that I've been kicking around in my mind. I wouldn't be surprised if there was a trauma component to many people who have this. And by trauma, by the way, trauma is an unfortunate word because when we think of trauma, we just go straight to the big T. And I wish we had a different word that was as wide as the memory reconsolidation brain mechanism is. I know Bruce well, you've, you've, uses you've used a phrase that I found very helpful. I think in one in one of the webinars I attended, which is like whenever the past is still alive, something like yeah. that. Yeah, the way I define trauma is any psychological injury that still impacts life today, mm -hmm. like a survival learning. Yeah, any, yeah, any, it, yeah. Anytime the bell rings and nobody's pushing it. <laughs> yeah, right. that's right. I mean, Bruce Ecker talks about emotional learning, which I think is a lovely way of describing it. It's just any language is this kind of wonderful, anarchic democracy, isn't it? And so, you know, if they come up with the word trauma and that's what everyone's Googling, you have to talk in those words. But when you talk in those words, you also have to try and stretch the word as well. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about trauma response like we just were, it doesn't necessarily mean that you were involved in like a terrorist attack or, or, or a really awful road accident or something like that. They can be smaller T and any kind of emotional learning can, can maybe make you feel less than safe. And so trigger in some way the nervous system response. Um, so I want to keep to our promise of uh, keeping you only for an hour. But I do, um, I do want to um, ask you about how you help coaches and therapists. I'm a, I'm a member of your Fresh Therapists community. I find yeah. it extremely helpful and I can talk about it at some other point, but I'd love for you to say like what it is, where it is, what it consists of and who might benefit. Yeah, so it's, it's designed specifically for therapists and coaches and the purpose of it is so that you, see when I went down this rabbit hole, I had very little resources to support me. Um, there was some reading that I could do. Some of the reading was quite, um, sort of scientific level, which was quite hard to read. So 
if you want to go down the rabbit hole and think this is what I want for my clients, I want to be getting these kind of consistent, reliable results of the kind that Jael just um, described where it's just gone. Um, then I teach therapists and coaches how to do that. And I do that in three ways. First of all, there's a whole learning journey. Um, there's like a success path of bite-sized learning that you can go through in order to get you started in terms of applying this uh, as quickly as possible. Um, there's also coaching. So there's live group coaching um, twice a month where we have a two-hour group coaching call. You can bring your questions. We have something called the One Client Challenge. So you can just bring the same case over time and I'll help you with it until that client's trauma response is gone, their problem is gone. And then the other thing, as you mentioned, is the community itself. We've got wonderful people like you, Howie, and many other kind of international, innovative coaches and therapists who just provide so much extra value to the value I, I hope to provide uh, and share their, their thoughts and questions all the time and their insights and their successes. And sharing successes, I think, is important because then you can break them down. Like mm. we did with your case there, Jael, yeah. you can actually see how it worked. Yeah. And when you see how a success worked for somebody else, you can you can apply that. So I'm learning from the people in the community just as hopefully the people in the community are learning from me and from each other. So they're the kind mm. of three main pillars. And, of course, I'm in that community every day. So in between the calls, you know, you can send your questions and your cases and I'll be there to help you out. And it just provides you that route to becoming the therapist and coach that gets spectacular results with your clients. And where do people go to, to access? So if you go to freshtherapists.com, that's fresh therapists plural. Um, so if you go to freshtherapists.com and, well, you can have a little explore there. You'll be able to sign up to a free um, webinar training. Um, you'll be able to download a checklist to see where you're up to at the moment, like a self-assessment. Um, you'll be able to find out more about the Coaching Academy itself. And you can also see any of the blogs and stuff that I've written to. So there's a, there's a whole host of stuff to explore. And, of course, it tells you if you wanted to get the book, uh, it tells you where to get the book as well. As you said, it's on Amazon, but all the links are on the website. And if anyone's got Kindle Unlimited, by the way, it's, it's even available, that book, for free. Okay, great, great. And for people who might want to uh, work with you as your client, um, I understand through, through regulations you can't therapize people in certain regions of the world, but you can coach. Yeah. So if anyone wanted to work with me, I'd say probably the same the same place because if you if you were to contact me via that website, rather than having people have several websites to juggle. If you go there, you'll be able to sign, you know, sign up to one of the things. You'll start getting emails from me, and then you can, you can give me a shout. In okay. Increasingly, I'm working with coaches and therapists, even on that side of it as well, hmm. because one of the things that I've noticed in terms of my own therapy, the work that we do actually triggers our own stuff as therapists and coaches. Mm -hmm. And so I was noticing things like that in the work for me. So obviously the only kind of therapy that I would get for myself or, or, or anyone that I cared about is memory reconsolidation aware therapy. Mm -hmm. So I went and, and had therapy with someone who was a memory reconsolidationist and it cleared all of that stuff. And so since that's happened, I know that I'm a better therapist. So when the work is stuck, I no longer panic around it. I can stay very much in the moment I've noticed actually I'm a better improviser because I still do the improv for fun. Oh, and in those moments where, where I used to panic, I don't anymore. I'm much more clear-headed. Those moments where we really want to help the other person, but we notice that we're not helping because the work is a little bit knotty, mm. needs a little bit more patience. I don't get um, panicked in those moments anymore. So all of these different ways that kind of... Um, got in my way as a therapist, memory reconsolidation helped me on a personal level. Mm. And so the way I'm thinking things now, the bigger impact I can have is if I can make coaches and therapists be excellent <clears throat> coaches and therapists. And part of that is by educating you how to do the work. But another part of that is reconsolidating your own stuff so that where the work used to touch that stuff, it no longer does. 
and you become a better therapist and coach as a result of that as well. Fantastic. Fantastic. And it's so one more time, fresh therapists, plural.com. And that's yeah, that's the line. everything you find the book, you can find information and you can join the community. Yeah. And you can sign up to, like I say, you can come to a free webinar event. Um, the, the next one is, well, people might be listening to this anytime. So if you do yeah. go to the page, the very first thing is going to be an invite to an event and you can spend 90 minutes with me where I really break this down in detail in terms of the roadmap of trauma removal, in terms of uh, going deeper into the invisible twin system. And I'll also show you a way in which you can actually re-script this mm-hmm. stuff as well on those webinars. Great, and I, and I will say, having uh, been a member of the community for many months now, not, not only do you have an amazing accent, but you are really good at um, <laughs> breaking things down into stepwise. Well, that's what I want to do because um, I want people to be able to understand. I want people not to be bogged down in learning. Learning is no good. I think action is where it's at. So I want things to be bite-sized and then you can actually go and put them into practice with your own clients and get these results quickly. If all people did was listen to hours and hours and hours of, of webinars, that wouldn't be any good to anybody. Uh, so yeah, I try and keep it action bite-sized and so you can actually apply it. Terrific. Yeah. Alan, thank you so much. Yeah, I'll thank you also. Thank for, you to, yeah. both for so much. Um, this has been really fun. Get, get, get yeah, to, definitely. To know you better and to uh, to have this one, one two on one time to uh, next to, time we do the improv though. We'll, Just the, yeah, we'll do improv. Oh, so you're into improv? Is I that, love improv. She's, she's oh, really? I'm okay. hugely into improv. Also, so also a musician. Fact, Okay, well, let's not. Uh, this is not my podcast. <laughs> so we, we I just it. want to join your group, man. <laughs> So do you do improv? I'm being nosy now, but do you do improv as well? I haven't found a group yet. uh, I used to in high school, but I haven't, I haven't found a place, but I would love, I would love that. Oh, it's so much fun. It's so much fun. I just have to inflict (laughs) it on my friends and family for now. So (laughs) I'd love an outlet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, lovely to see you both. And it's been a lovely hour and uh, hopefully I'll connect with you both soon. You're a delight. Thank you. Take care, Alan. Take care. Bye. Bye. And that's a wrap. You can find the show notes for today's episode at plantyourself.com slash 572. You can find links to Alan's book and to freshtherapists.com where you can find out more about how he teaches therapists and coaches and anyone else the skills of memory reconsolidation. Let's see, movement news. I had a good um, weekend ultimate beach back on the beach after almost a month away, both playing on grass and then not doing anything for a little while during my U.S. jaunt. So I am back in town and I'm trying to work up my uh, the muscles that, that, that work on the beach. There is a full day tournament this coming Sunday that I am thinking of playing in. I have to figure out whether I'm going to have the the legs, the stamina to be able to to justify taking up a spot on the team for the entire tournament. But we shall see. Um, Other than that, been doing a lot of walking and um, back to um, morning beach workouts, sprints, and stuff like that. 